0: Good morning. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she is alive. But if her husband died she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code.
1: The word of the Lord. Kurt Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist and uh, author who specializes in the intersection between neuroscience and a Christian view of what it means to be a human being. Um, In his most recent book, he makes a really beautiful observation. He says, every baby comes into the world looking for someone who is looking for them. Every baby comes into the world saying, where are you? (laughs) Um, But then you put that baby on mommy's chest and like, boom, immediate intimacy, immediate connection, immediate belonging. It's a beautiful picture of, um, of our search for intimacy and belonging, but also our experience of it. But if you think about it, you realize that it's not only um, when we're babies, that, that we're looking for this, because you are still in this world looking for someone who's looking for you. The problem is we're not always finding and experiencing it at the level that we long for. Why? Well, there's no one simple answer. There are multiple reasons, but one of the biggest is this. It's that intimacy without vulnerability is undesirable, because that kind of intimacy is it's a false intimacy, that just leaves you even more dissatisfied and empty. Intimacy without vulnerability is undesirable, but vulnerability without risk is impossible. That means we really only have two choices in the world. Either we can um, protect ourselves and have no intimacy, or at best, like a false intimacy that just leaves us more dissatisfied and empty, or we can, we can really open ourselves up to the risk of being hurt in order to experience true intimacy, but there's no guarantee. Those are the two options, which kind of sucks, right? Um, here they are, self-protection, but no intimacy, self-risk, but no guarantee. Should we just pray and go home now? Well, what if there's a third option? Would we be interested in exploring that together? Uh, We're in a series on Romans chapters five through eight. Um, Over the past few weeks, the Apostle Paul has been giving us different pictures that show us what it looks like to find new life in Christ. So a couple of years ago, the picture was death. We saw that when Jesus' story becomes your story, you go from a living death to a dying life. Last week, the story was slavery. Jesus was handed over to slavery and death so that we could be handed over to freedom and life. But this week, the the picture that Paul gives us is the picture of marriage, a very different kind of picture. He's showing us that, that finding new life in Christ is like finding the intimacy and the belonging that you've been looking for all your life. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's find out by seeing three things in this passage. Paul shows us The obstacle to belonging, the invitation to belonging, and lastly, the fruit of belonging. Okay? The obstacle, the invitation, and the fruit of belonging. Okay? So first, he shows us the obstacle of belonging. Now, Paul begins this passage with a basic principle. Here it is. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? The law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. That's the principle. What does it mean? Well, when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about Jewish law. When God rescued Israel out of slavery, he gave them the Ten Commandments and about 400 or so other laws for how they're supposed to live. Paul's talking about Jewish law, but Israel was always intended to be a model for the rest of humanity. So, even though Jewish law has certain things that are contextualized for a recently liberated slave people in the ancient Middle East, it also has moral and spiritual principles that apply to all people. That's why back in Romans 2, Paul said this when Gentiles, that's anybody who's not Jewish, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The law is written on their hearts. That Paul is saying that we're all obligated to the law because we all know the law. We all know the law. It's like a moral GPS has been installed in every human heart. So even though, like, you know, sometimes you'll hear a Christian say, hey, atheism leads to moral breakdown. Atheism leads to moral anarchy. And, and atheists oftentimes will very rightfully object to that and say, look, I may not believe in God, but I know the right thing to do. And Paul would say to both of them, "Uh, the atheist is right, and the Bible could have told you that. That God has installed a moral GPS in every human heart, regardless of whether they believe in God. Now, it is true that in our culture, we we do live in a culture that says, hey, uh, who's to say what's right and what's wrong? At the same time, we all know it's not like we're buzzing and bombinating along in life, oblivious to any moral reality. Of course not. We know. And by the way, one of the ways we know that we know is, like, just look at the emphasis in our culture on justice. We know. I mean, there is an absolute objective moral standard that exists outside of ourselves. It's not a social construct. We, it, it makes demands on us and it brings condemnation when we fail to live up to those demands and by the way we also inflict that condemnation on others when they fail to live up to the ma- to the demands because even though we say who's to say we all know now here's why this is so important for us this morning remember the principle the law has authority over someone only as long as that person is alive but if that person dies then they're released from the law. That's the principle. Now, stay with me for just a little bit longer. Paul gives an illustration of this principle. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. Then he takes this illustration and he applies it to Christians. He says, by dying to what once bound us, we have been Released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So Paul is saying that a Christian is someone who is released from the law by dying to it. Now, here's the big question. Why in the world would Paul say that we need to be released from the law? I mean, that's the moral standard. Is he saying that there's something wrong with it? No. He's saying we're in a dysfunctional relationship with it. That's the point of the illustration. It's like an unhealthy marriage and we need to be released. And you can see that's what Paul means by the language that he uses to talk about our relationship to the law. So if we go back to verse 1, Paul said the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. That word authority is a word that um, means to lord over or dominate someone. Or in verse 6, Paul says, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. That word bound is a word that means to be held captive. He's saying we're in this dysfunctional relationship to the law. Why? Because we're married to it. You know, it's, um, it's one thing to be sensitive to the law. It's another thing to be married to the law. That's why he's using this picture of marriage. The image is intentional because think about it. A marriage relationship is like, it's all about intimacy and belonging. It's all about giving and receiving love, affirmation, acceptance, approval, in a deeply intimate, vulnerable relationship. That's what a marriage relationship is. It's one thing to obey the law. I mean, we should do the right thing, serve God, serve others. We should do that. But it's, it's another thing entirely to be married to the law. Being married to the law means that you're using your moral performance to get the love, intimacy, and belonging that your heart really longs for. So, for instance, um, you know how everybody has their own little pet peeves? Those are things that bother you, but they don't bother other people. Other people have their own pet peeves. So, things like um, people who drive too slow in the left-hand lane, or um, people who brag, or people who um, cut in line, or people who load the dishwasher the wrong way. You know, we all have these pet peeves, and in all the pet peeves, there's a moral ideal that's at stake in those things, like considerateness, or humility, or fairness. Every pet peeve has a moral ideal at stake, except how you load the dishwasher. There is no moral ideal in that, which means I either just ended or started an argument at home after church. But here's the thing, we all have these moral ideals and they're sacred to us. And one of the main ways that we get a sense of identity and self and love and intimacy and belonging in this world is by how closely we live up to our moral ideals. By the way, it's also by how much other people fail to live up to our moral ideals because that gives us an opportunity to feel superior to them. But that's it's one thing to be sensitive to the law, okay? So if you do the right thing, then you feel good about yourself. But if, if you don't do the right thing, you feel bad about yourself. And that's right. That means that moral GPS is functioning properly in your life. But it's another thing to be married to the law. Being married to the law means that you are using your moral performance to get the love, intimacy, and belonging that your heart so deeply needs. And when we do that, that means that the primary motivating factor in our heart is fear we're dominated we're being lorded over we're being held captive by this relationship to the moral law but even more tragically than that the love intimacy and belonging we're getting is it's fake it's false because it's all based on us protecting ourselves there's no vulnerability it's just us protecting ourselves and that's why paul says we need to be released from that the intimacy we're finding is a false intimacy because it's all based on self protection we're using our moral performance to get the love intimacy and belonging we need it's an obstacle to our belonging and that leads to our next point paul's just shown us the obstacle to belonging but next he shows us the invitation to belonging because he's just shown us what an unhealthy marriage looks like but next he shows us does a healthy marriage look like a healthy marriage is all about being vulnerable you know, and that means taking a risk. And if you do that, you could risk getting hurt. You could be humiliated. You could be rejected. It's kind of like, you know how you can tell when a pet, like a, like a cat or a dog, when they really trust you? It's when they roll over on their back and they expose their belly to you. They're exposing their weakest part. Unless we do the same thing, unless we um, open ourselves up like that, there's no chance for us to experience real intimacy. Because true belonging, true intimacy requires radical vulnerability. So, in verse 4, Paul's talking to Christians, and he says, well, that's what happened to you if you're a Christian, or if you're exploring faith, he's saying, that's what he's inviting you to do. So, notice what he says, Um, so, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead." He's saying, instead of belonging or being married to the law, uh, that you might belong or be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead. That's Jesus. He's saying that a really healthy relationship, real intimacy, real belonging, is belonging to Jesus. Now, we read that, and you realize, of course, we are on a head-on collision with our culture, because what does our culture say about belonging? Um, Alan Noble, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, that is. Last fall, Alan Noble, he's a Christian writer who came out with a book last fall called You Are Not Your Own. And the main thesis in his book is this. He says that modern Western culture is based on this idea, I am my own and I belong to myself. Even if you believe in God, this is the cultural soup we all swim in. Modern Western society is based on this idea of the radical freedom and autonomy of every human individual. Now, every time we talk about this, it's always important to put the proper footnote on this, and that means that we need to affirm the dignity of every individual in this world, and also to acknowledge that the only reason that this idea is in our culture in the first place is because of Christianity. This idea of radical individual um, dignity is a Christian idea, and there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of modern historians and philosophers and sociologists who are constantly pointing this out. Many of them are atheists. They're not promoting a Christian agenda. They're just being honest about history. But there's a huge difference between the, the dignity of every human individual, honoring the dignity of every human individual, and worshiping my own autonomy as an individual. Because if we really do belong to ourselves, then Alan Noble, he goes through in his book, and he talks about all the different effects that has on our lives. He calls them the responsibilities of self-belonging. If you really belong to yourself, that means that you are responsible to justify your own existence, to create your own meaning, to define your own identity, to construct your own morality? Does any of this sound familiar? It should, because we live in a world that says we're all responsible for doing all of these things. Why? Because the default assumption of our culture is self-belonging. Now listen, if there is no God, then we really do belong to ourselves. And if that's the case, we're wasting our time here. We should just go to brunch and have mimosas. But if there is a God, and if we really were created to belong to that God in in a relationship, uh, trusting, loving, intimate, vulnerable relationship, if that's the case, then What would happen to our lives, what would happen to our relationships, and what would happen to our world if instead of belonging to God, we were to say, I am my own and I belong to myself? Is it reasonable to expect some level of breakdown and dysfunction in our world if we did that? Listen, there are two realities in our world that I think are pretty undeniable, at least in modern Western culture. Uh, Number one, we live in a world that says we are radically free, autonomous individuals who who belong to ourselves. We also live in a world with skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, addiction, loneliness, and social division. Is it possible, are we willing to consider the possibility that those two things are, are connected to each other? Because if they are, then finding healing for our lives and our relationship and for the world would look like finding healing in our relationship with god that's exactly what paul is talking about in this passage do you see that he's saying um that that true intimacy true belonging means belonging to jesus but you see that leads us back to the challenge that we began with intimacy without vulnerability is undesirable but vulnerability without risk without um vulnerability um without risk is there's no guarantees that's the problem we began with friends here's the problem to really give yourself to God to really belong to Jesus I'm not going to lie to you you know that's risky that's scary that means you're risking everything especially if you have been hurt by the church doing that means possibly reopening all kinds of wounds and traumas that may you still haven't healed from those things but to really give yourself to God, to really belong to God, that's what Paul and the gospel is inviting us to do. Now, here's the thing. What makes real vulnerability possible? It's if somebody else makes the first move. So, if one cat rolls over, all the other cats roll over. Vulnerability becomes possible if somebody else makes the first move first. Friends, the gospel is all about a God who makes the first move. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, when God created the first humans, in Genesis chapter 2, it says that they were naked and not ashamed. Naked means total intimacy, total vulnerability. Not ashamed means they were safe with each other because they were safe with God. But then they decided that they wanted to belong to themselves. They rebelled against God. They hid from God in the garden. But God came into the garden and said, where are you? This is a God who made the first move. In other words, instead of a God who stands off to the side with a scowl on his face, folding his arms, tapping his toes and saying, all right now, if you want intimacy with me, then you're going to have to take the first step and, and be vulnerable first. That's not what this God says. This is a God who came into the world vulnerable. This is a God who came into the world looking for someone who was hiding from him. Friends, true intimacy requires radical vulnerability. That is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus had his hands and feet nailed to a cross. There is nothing more vulnerable than that. You know, when God came into the world... He came looking for humans. He said, where are you? But when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was on the cross crying out, where are you? Jesus was on the cross looking for someone who was looking for him, but instead all he found was humiliation, scorn, rejection, and abandonment so that we could find true love, intimacy, and belonging in him. Dear ones, The invitation to belong to Jesus is an invitation to give up self belonging. But that's risky. It's scary. It feels like we're risking everything. But Jesus didn't just risk everything, Jesus gave up everything so that we could find real vulnerability and intimacy with him. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the obstacle to belonging. Um, Paul has just shown us the invitation to belonging. But lastly, we see the fruit of belonging. Because remember what we started with at the very beginning. Paul showed us that if you're married to the law, that means that you're using your moral performance as a way of getting the love, intimacy, and belonging that our hearts really need. And it never works. That's why Paul says it's like a dysfunctional marriage. And he shows us the results of that in verse 5. He says that when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now, what does this mean? We could um, retranslate this now using the language we've already been using this morning. We could uh, paraphrase it like this. When we belonged to ourselves, that's what it means to be in the flesh. When we belonged to ourselves, being married to the law led to all kinds of distortions in our lives, that's sinful passions, resulting, that's the fruit, in our lives and our world falling apart, that's the death belonging to ourselves leads to distortions which leads to bears fruit for it death in our lives and in this world that's where it all goes why do we do that well paul has been showing us the reason we do that is because we're in this story that says that that we need to that when we're married to the law means we're using our moral performance to, to as a way of getting the love intimacy and belonging that we want and that's, that's what we do. But why do we do it? Well, Paul shows us in this passage. The, the reason that we do it is because we're looking for this love, intimacy, and belonging, but it never really gets us where we want to go. You know, we've been talking the past several uh, weeks about stories and scripts, if you've been with us. Um, every script, a script is something that tells you what to do, what to say, how to act. You all, every single one of us has a script that tells you how to live, but every script presupposes a story. So, for instance, if the story is a romantic comedy, then people act a certain way because that's a certain kind of story, but if the story is a horror film, then people act a different way because that's a different kind of story. That's why you'll never see Hugh Grant flashing his charming smile in one of the Friday the 13th movies. Every story, people act different ways because you're in different kinds of stories. Now, scripts are explicit, right? But a story is in the background. You don't really, you never really get explicit about the story. In other words, the script never has people saying, hey, everybody, remember, we're in a comedy right now. So let's make sure to act in a way that's appropriate to a comedy. We don't say that. The story is in the background, and yet the story still totally shapes the way we live in the world. Every single one of us has a story that we're living in, and it totally shapes the way we live in the world, the script that we live. So for instance, here's the question. What story are we in, in modern Western culture? One of the biggest stories in our culture says this that performance and productivity lead to love, intimacy, and belonging. We would never say it like this out loud, but that's the story. Performance and productivity lead to love, intimacy, and belonging. Performance and productivity, that's just another way of talking about fruit. Actually, it's probably the perfect way to talk about it in our culture, because our culture really is all about performance and productivity. I mean, look at the scripts we use. We talk about things like crushing your goals or optimizing your life. Even spirituality gets co-opted into this story. I mean, for instance, mindfulness is huge right now. But one of the main reasons that Western people practice mindfulness, yeah, we say it's to lower our anxiety and to get better sleep, but the reason we're doing that is because we want to optimize our lives and increase our productivity, we are in a story in our culture that says performance and productivity lead to love, intimacy, and belonging. Paul would say it like this, that we're bearing fruit to belong. That, that we're in a false story that says performance and productivity lead to love, intimacy, and belonging. We're bearing fruit in order to belong. That is a false story. And even though we think we're finding love, intimacy, and belonging, what it really leads to is death. That's what it's doing in our lives. In the first place, we're living by fear. In the second place, um, the love, intimacy, and belonging we're finding is a conditional love, a false intimacy, and an empty belonging. It's not really getting us where we want to go. For instance, uh, I read an essay a few years ago by uh, an English author named Ruth Whitman. She was talking about the gig economy, or, or um, you know, everybody's got a side hustle nowadays. In the article, she's talking about all the self-branding and self-promotion and um, and self-marketing that goes along with it. But, she says, none of it's really about the money. Here's how she puts it. She says, almost everyone I know has some kind of hustle, whether job, hobby, or side project. Share my blog post, buy my book, click my link, follow me on Instagram, visit my Etsy shop, donate to my Kickstarter, crowdfund my heart surgery. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul. The sad truth is that many of us would probably make more money stacking shelves than selling our thing. The real price, she says, is deeper, more existential. What this is really about for many of us is a roaring black hole of psychological need. We shackle our self-worth to the success of these projects, We grub and scrabble and claw at one another, chasing these tiny pellets of self-esteem. Do you hear what she's saying? And it's not just a gig or a side hustle. Whatever your thing is, whether it's soccer or sex or a social cause, we, we drive ourselves to death because we're in this false story that says performance and productivity lead to love, intimacy, and belonging, but all it really leads to is death. Paul says we're bearing fruit in order to belong, but do you see now what this passage is showing us? The gospel flips the script so that instead of bearing fruit in order to belong, look what Paul says. You died. You died to the law. You died to that dysfunctional relationship through the body of Christ, the death of Jesus on the cross, in order that you might belong to another. Why? In order that we might bear fruit for God we instead of bearing fruit in order to belong he's saying no 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 the gospel says that you belong first to jesus that's where you begin apart from your performance and productivity or your lack of it apart from anything you do or don't do you already belong to jesus that's where a christian begins you already have all of the love intimacy and belonging that your heart longs for Or we could say it like this. Instead of bearing fruit in order to belong, the gospel says, no, you belong in order to bear fruit. It totally flips the script. Friends, here's the thing. If we are um, no longer bearing fruit in order to belong, but belonging in order to bear fruit, that is a whole different kind of belonging. That radically changes the way we approach everything in our life. First of all, let me just give you a couple of examples. That changes, it transforms the way we approach our work, or whatever it is you might be called and gifted to do in this world. So that instead of, um, you know, using other people, holding them hostage through our moral performance in order to get the love, intimacy, and belonging that we desire, it means for the first time we can really start serving and loving other people because we're no longer doing it to get something. We're doing it because we've already received everything from Jesus. That means we can finally start really serving people, really serving God, because we're not using them to get the deepest needs of our heart fulfilled. It changes our relationship to work. It also changes our relationships with other people. Whether you're married or single, it changes all of your relationships. For instance, it changes the way we look at marriage so that instead of romance and marriage and sexual fulfillment being put on this idolatrous pedestal, which is what Christians and Hollywood do, it dethrones marriage off of that pedestal. But it also elevates singleness as an honorable, beautiful way of living a fulfilling life in this world. But for all of us, it it means that you can finally begin to start really loving people, loving them, not using them, not holding them hostage, not looking for them to meet the deepest needs of your heart because Jesus has already met those needs. If you're looking for people to fulfill that black hole of psychological need in your heart, you put those kinds of expectations on people, not only will your expectations crush them, but their inevitable failure to live up to your expectations will crush you. The gospel sets us free to approach everything in our life in a completely different way. Instead of belonging to bear, instead of bearing fruit to, to, in order to belong, we're belonging in order to bear fruit. Friends, the gospel sets you free to do all of that. You know, Jesus came into this world looking for you. The gospel sets you free to, to bear fruit in an entirely different way. So I want to invite you this morning to consider what that would mean for your life. That belonging to Jesus means that you can approach bearing fruit in this world in a completely different way. Jesus is the only God who came looking for you on the cross. He's the only God who made the first move, the only God who became vulnerable first. Jesus came looking for you. That means that that you've been set free now, so that instead of um, uh, using our moral performance as a way of getting love, intimacy, and belonging in this world, We've already received that from Jesus. That means we can be vulnerable and find real intimacy with others because we have a God who already came and made the first move with us so that we could be vulnerable and intimate with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. You're a God who makes the first move. Thank you for making the first move with us, Lord, for not standing off to the side and waiting for us to become vulnerable first. Even though you would have had every right to do that, Lord, we praise you this morning that you are a God who loves us and cares for us so much that you would make the first move and become vulnerable first. Lord, we're all in this world looking for someone who's looking for us. Thank you for being the God who's looking for us for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to flip the script in our own lives. Lord, to stop living in that false story, to remind ourselves that the real story we're living in is is the story of a God who makes the first move and became vulnerable first. Lord, we pray that the more and more we live in that story, the more and more we will be able to bear real fruit for you, not in order to belong, but because we already belong to Jesus. For we pray it all in his name. Amen.